This is the second week in a series as we examine the subject of biblical harmony in the midst of a racially and ethnically divided world, a nation, and very often the church. The vision for this series is to help our church at College Park look more like the church, the one people that Jesus bought. And my dream is that we would somehow be able to continue what has begun in our church and to lead the way in bridging the painful racial divide that still exists in the church in the United States. But I want you to know that division across ethnic lines and people groups is not just a United States problem, it is a human problem. Wherever there are differences, our brokenness tends to exploit them. You might wonder, why, why us, why this thing now? Partly because I believe in the Antioch vision. I wanna be like that church. But also, when I look at us as a church, when I think about our deep commitment to biblical orthodoxy, when I think of our physical proximity to both the suburbs and the city, when I think of our historic core value of unity in the midst of diversity, and when I see what the Holy Spirit has accomplished in our body in the last five years, I just think that maybe we can make a dent in this issue. And that maybe, just maybe, we can help to bridge a divide which exists within the church at large and to pave a pathway for a new level of healing. Last week, my charge to you was that I wanted us to learn how to walk together. We looked at Colossians 3, tried to help you understand that the beautiful reality of the gospel is that it takes the most strident, and deeply ingrained divisions within a society or culture, and the gospel gets underneath them and transforms them. So listen to me, it doesn't mean that your ethnicity goes away. It doesn't mean that your history or your culture goes away. No, 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 the gospel does something better than that. It doesn't eclipse who you are. The gospel changes who you are from the inside out. So the gospel is powerful enough to transform ethnicity, to transform culture, to transform your history in order to use it to glorify and honor Christ. So you have to be the best you with your past, with your experience, with your ethnicity as a gospel-loving follower of Jesus. Now, as a part of that message, I defined some key words. This is really important because part of the challenge and the way the devil gets into this conversation is that we don't understand one another because we don't know what words mean. So here's my operating definition with some key words. You may find a different way to define these. This is how I'm defining them. I'm not saying I'm, um, I've defined these perfectly, but this is where I'm operating from. So what is ethnicity? Ethnicity is the classification of groups of people based upon culture or geographic origins. Again, think um, French, German, Dutch, African, Asian, Pacific Islander, where you are and your culture. That's what ethnicity is all about. Second, culture, typical beliefs and behaviors and customs for a group of people. So I talked about windmill cookies, Dutch windmill cookies last week, and some of you took pictures of them and sent them to me to tease me last week. I mean, I, I wanted a cup of coffee and your cookies, so. 
Third, prejudice. What's prejudice? It is a set of beliefs or ideas or an attitude toward a person based upon that person's association or group. So you have prejudice towards a person because of their association with all the other people who are in that particular class. So if this one person is like all of them, that's prejudice. Now we talked about two very loaded terms, race and racism. What's race? Race is a socially constructed term in the United States that deconstructed ethnicity, so rather than thinking about French, German, African, Asian, that went away, and it deconstructed that into categories of, of white and colored. I use that term historically, not because I use that term or think it's an appropriate term, but it's a historical term, and that's what it was, white and colored in conjunction with a cultural view of the superiority of white. So race as a sociological construct is loaded with white supremacy, racism. Racism then takes race and it is the systemization of that ideology into language, laws, culture, and thinking. Or you can think of it this way. It's racial ideology that gets baked into how we talk, who we will let our kids date, who will let them marry, and the laws of a land. That's racism, such that you end up treating people unkindly or unjustly based upon the belief that they are inferior. Now my goal from Colossians 3 was to help you to see that when Paul says, here there is neither Greek nor Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, that they would feel something within that text that we don't feel unless we go there with these words. And I suggested to you that you needed to be more than just not a person who's committed racist acts, and you need to be more than somebody who just doesn't want to think or knows that, doesn't think that um, you should do those things or that thinks that racism is wrong, but instead to be anti-racist. In the same way that you don't want just to not commit abortion or to know abortion is wrong, but to be anti-abortion. And this is the teachings of Jesus. Jesus himself said, love, your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Notice he didn't say, obviously, persecute those who persecute you. He didn't say, just feel love for those who are persecuting you. Jesus pushes the envelope and says, bless those who persecute you. We're to bless them, to pray for them. Or Romans chapter 12 puts it this way, do not be overcome with evil. Now, you know this passage, most of you. What does Paul say? Does he say, do not be overcome by evil, by not doing evil? Does he say, be not overcome with evil by feeling love towards other people? He says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's the idea. The starting point then for racial reconciliation is a willingness to walk together under this gospel-centered, cross-motivated banner that I'm going to find ways to put off what's wrong and I'm going to put on and do what's right. Now today, I want us to think of this next step, which is weeping together. Today, I want to help you understand why I think this is the next step in our journey. I'm using Romans 12, not because Romans 12, Romans 12 specifically addresses racism. It doesn't. But it is a very clear application when you understand what Romans 12 is indeed teaching. Let me show you. We begin in Romans 12 with a very 
well-known statement about Christian living, verse two, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so what he's identifying in verse one is that God has done something special in you, and so then, because of the work of Christ, so secondly then, you ought to not be conformed, but instead be transformed. And how are you transformed? By how you think, by the renewing of your mind. So just understand, right thinking precedes right living. You live right because you think right. So one of my responsibilities as your pastor, and I take it very seriously, I know you give me a trust, a trust I do not take for granted, especially when I'm going into these waters, is that I need to help you to think biblically so you'll know how to apply it in the world in which you live. In light of your experience, your background, your home in which you were raised, the internal bias, the questions that you have, And then notice what he says in verse three, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. In other words, humility and pride affect everything, positively or negatively. If you come to this conversation with pride, you're you're gonna end up at a particular place with a conclusion that's already predetermined. Humility opens up the heart and says, look, I wanna come ready to learn, ready to listen. Secondly, verse four tells us that the church is made up of many members. He says, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not have all the same function. So he's identifying the church is diverse. It's always been diverse, sometimes ethnically. Sometimes the church isn't diverse ethnically because of where the church is located. And that's not wrong. But if a church is located in a multi-ethnic environment and it's not multi-ethnic, something isn't right. And what Paul is saying here is that this church is made up of people with a variety of gifts and they have to be careful lest they begin to think that certain gifts are more important than other gifts and they begin to be exclusionary. He says, verse five, for we are all part of the body of Christ, though many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. So we belong to one another and we belong to Christ. In other words, we need one another. The fact that you see the world differently than I do and your experience is different is helpful to me because I could, in my arrogance, think that my way is the only way. This is not a 21st century United States of America problem. This is a human problem. Because at our worst, in our brokenness, humans tend to divide under proud and tribal associations. Every culture in the world has this. I was talking with somebody after the service about Nigeria, and they don't have tribal divisions based upon the color of one's skin or white or black, but they have divisions within particular tribal groups. And they said it's awful. And that's true, look, anywhere in the world you'll find this because this is a human issue. My goodness, go to a junior high lunch table and you'll find this. (laughs) Go to the computer room. Go to the gym. Go to your family reunion. It's a tribal problem because it's a human problem. So Paul then says, let love be genuine in verse nine. Why? Because we are to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're to love one another because underneath our differences is this commonality of our relationship with Christ. And then he says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Why does he say this? Because 
complicated relationships can be exhausting. Complicated subjects can wear you out. And the pull within our culture and within our brokenness is to go the opposite direction and not enter into this space. And what Paul says is, be fervent in zeal. I know this is hard, but don't quit. Don't give up. Tribal posturing is popular and effective, but it is not Christian. It doesn't fit with the gospel. Verse 12 and 13, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. They, they weren't to allow the pressure cooker of life to sink their fidelity to living out the gospel. They couldn't throw their hands up and say, This is too hard, my life is too complicated, this, this conversation is too loaded, I'm out. Paul's like, you're part of the body. You can't tap out. You can't. I mean, you can, but even when you do, you don't because you're still part of the body of Christ. Then verse 14 is a stunning statement. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is another expression of that, that bell curve. It's not just enough to not be those who curse persecutors. It's not just to be those who think nicely about their persecutors. They actually are to go one step further and to bless those who persecute them. And then we come to the critical text in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to what, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So do you hear the tone of this text? The tone is a call for humility and unity, and the clear focus is not on what the other person should do, but on what you should do. Brother, sister, you gotta think on this issue, what do you need to do in order to be godly? You can't be like, I'm gonna enter into this conversation as long as they're gonna 100% own their part of the problem. That's not how marriage works, that's not how parenting works, that's not how this issue works. We express our godliness by entering into the emotional highs and lows with people, which is what Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So the foundation of the gospel creates a position, this is who I am in Christ, that gets underneath all other divisions and a posture as it relates to the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in the lives of other people. And if I understand the gospel correctly, then I can enter into the space of pain in their lives. And while weeping with those who weep is not the only thing that we do, if you don't do that, then you negate your ability to take further steps. I mean, I've seen this in my marriage. Remember, I've used this story years ago, but... One day my wife was having an issue, a problem, a concern, and I sat down on the couch, she started on, telling me what it was, and like within 15 seconds I knew what the solution was. And I was like, okay, 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 here's what you need to do. Great husbanding skills there. She looked at me and she's like, what are you, who are you? And that, that's when I knew this was gonna be a really good sermon illustration. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I said, um, well, who, 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 would, who would you want? And she said, I'd, I'd like my husband. And I said, mm, and what would he be doing? She said, he'd be listening and not talking. And I said, mm, let me go get him. And I walked out of the room. It's a true story. I walked back in and we started the conversation over by me listening and not solving the problem. Why? Because weeping with those who weep gives you a platform in order to then speak into issues. If you don't weep with those who weep, you don't 
have the standing. So here's a model. I've learned this by um, watching um, our brothers in the 3D, our diversity disciple discussion group. I've seen this applied with our civil rights vision trip. I think that we have to start with what it means to love one another. You're a blood-bought brother or sister in Christ. I'm in a posture of listening. I'm gonna be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get irritated. And then lament, I'm gonna weep with those who weep so that I can learn and then we can leverage. We're not just gonna pray and not do anything, but I'm gonna pray and lament with you so that we can now move together towards solution. So let me help you understand what this step of lament is. Lament is the language of sorrow in the Bible. It is how the people of God have historically taken their burdens to the Lord. It is a language that uh, encompasses a third of the Psalms, and it allows us to both vocalize our pain, to empathize with other people, and to memorialize things that we tend to forget. So let me help you understand those three functions of lament. First, that it gives us an opportunity to vocalize. So lament, and we'll talk about this more next week, gives us a prayer language to talk to God and to others about our pain. It's where we tell God, this hurts, and I'm mad, and I don't know why you don't do something about this. And there is pointed language in the Psalms for us to tell God, here's why, so that we can take our burdens to him instead of vomiting all of our sinful emotions out on other people because we're so angry. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. Vocalize. Secondly, lament helps us weep with those who weep with empathy. It lets us enter into the space of somebody's pain and to know what's happening, they're lamenting so I can come alongside them. And the reason why this is so important is because, and this is true not just about the subject of racial reconciliation, this is true across the board, pain and grief, when it lands on us, it is scary. It's really scary, and it's really complicated. And if you're a friend, and your friend is grieving, and you're that friend, here's what you want to do. Their grief makes you scary, so you want to fix it. And you can't fix it, so you usually are frustrated, and then when you're frustrated, you end up feeling guilty about it. I wanna fix it, I can't. I'm so frustrated, Ugh. so now I feel guilty. There's some of you who left last week, you're part of majority culture, you're white, you felt guilty. You don't need to feel guilty because you're white. But the reason you feel guilty is because you, you wanna fix it, you can't, it's frustrating, and so you either go to anger or you go to guilt. And that's not an uncommon expression of how we feel. I've, I've counseled lots of, of, of people when a loved one has passed that they feel guilty. I had a conversation last Sunday with somebody who said, so-and-so passed away and I feel guilty. Like I should do something, like I couldn't help them. Death and grief is a reminder. We are not in control of our lives like we think we are. And sometimes it surfaces in guilt. So, you ought not feel guilty just because you're part of a majority culture or because you're white. There are some things that you need to think about. We'll talk about this next week in terms of your response to that. But you ought to just not walk out of here thinking that this whole series is just about you feeling guilty for your ethnicity. No. Here's the second thing. It's often very common in grief for people to, to go onto two ditches. When they're sad or in, 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 they're struggling, they go to the ditch of despair 
which is I can't do this, or they go to the ditch of denial, everything's fine. This is how we grieve as human beings. Some of you have, got, have done this when a, a loved one was lost. You, 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 you went down the road of, I can't do this. Christianity doesn't even work. Or you just deny, oh, everything's fine, I'm good. When inside, you're not good. And friends, we do the exact same thing when it comes to racial reconciliation. We either like, hey, we can't go there. We shouldn't talk about this. Or everything's fine, it's all over. Lament enters the complicated terrain of this and it invites us to weep with those who weep. And some of us need to have a language lesson on how to lament, and it would really help you. Let me give you an example. Let me help you to think about how to train your heart. A few years ago, 2016, I used this illustration in this church. This isn't a new one. It was in reference to a conference that I went to associated with the Gospel Coalition. It was a, a council meeting where I heard Micah Edmondson, an African-American pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who's a pastor of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He gave an address to these leaders in evangelicalism comparing civil rights movement with the Black Lives Matter movement. It was a compelling and helpful address. And at the climax of the address, here's what he said. Listen carefully. These are his words. My wife has to beg me, a 37-year-old man, not to go out to Walmart at night, not because she's afraid of the criminal element, but because she's afraid of the police element. Because she knows that when an officer sees me, they aren't going to see me as Micah Edmondson, pastor of New City Fellowship Presbyterian Church. When they see me, they aren't going to see me as Micah Edmondson, PhD in systematic theology. When they see me, all they're going to see me is as a black man out late at night. And she knows that we are getting stopped at 10 times the rate of everybody else, arrested at 26 times the rate of everybody else, and killed at five times the rate of everybody else. Black Lives Matter, these are his, these are his words, can see the injustice in those statistics. And then he said this, I was in the room, and it was... It was very compelling and thick when he said, how can Black Lives Matter see the value of a black life better than we can? Why does Black Lives Matter care more about the value of my life than you do? Now, when I read you this quote, where did your heart go? Did you gravitate towards the statistics and think, where did you get that from? Did you hear his reference to Black Lives Matter and immediately begin your critique and your argument about that movement? Did you hear his comment about being afraid of the police and think, that's ridiculous? Or were you able to cut through all of that and were you able to weep with an African-American pastor whose wife is afraid for him to go to Walmart at night because of how he might be perceived? Does his comment want... Does this comment make you want to lean in to understand how he feels, or do you immediately want to argue with him? Now hear me. I am not saying that discussions about statistics, social movements, Black Lives Matter, or policing are off the table. Those are on the table. But what I am saying is that part of the problem is that so often we come to the topic of race and our first step is not to be marked with being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to get irritated. And church, that's not a racial problem, that's a human problem. Which is why weeping with those who weep is so incredibly powerful. H.P. Charles says, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. Some of you are privately wondering, well, Mark, doesn't this go both ways? 
And the answer is yes. Is there a need just for majority white Christians to weep with those who weep? No, it's not just them. It does cut both ways. When anyone experiences any kind of prejudice, we ought to identify as wrong and to weep with those who weep. In no way saying that if you were a white guy and you had African Americans who treated you unfairly in high school, that that was allowable or okay. That was wrong. But I'm not saying that because that happened, that we ought not talk about this. You need to remember our history as a nation. And we need to locate ourselves outside of just our particular own experience and to realize that there were hundreds of years where the legacy of slavery, the breakup of, America, of African-American families, the separations of husbands and wives and children from their parents, the sexual assault of African-American women, the impoverishment of a class of people, the segregation of schools and churches, the racialization of laws and local ordinances, and yes, the use of law enforcement to enforce all of that have created wounds and pains and mistrust that are going to take time to heal and to rectify. But we will never get there if we don't learn to lament. Back to Romans 12, if we're haughty and wise in our own sights, we won't live in harmony with one another. We'll think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, shouldn't, like that was a long time ago, shouldn't we just get over the past? Well, here's what I want you to realize. Just get your head around this timeline. That the length, the length of the history of racism and the length of the history of ethnic tension is enormous. So the past does have an effect on the present. I'm not in favor of weaponizing victimization as a power grab. But it's important to realize that scars and pains are a part of our story. The past doesn't define you, but it does shape you. And walking through traumatic and painful experiences inside and outside of the church are especially painful when people's first response is to argue with your tears. My wife has a scar on her, one of her eyebrows where she was hit in the head with a bucket in the middle of a tornado in a three-on-three basketball tournament. And to this day, she's deathly afraid of storms. And there was a moment when we were at an event, not with this church or my previous one, and the storm hit, and she was trying to get out of the car. She paused because lightning hit, because she's deathly afraid of storms. I mean, when you get hit in the head with a bucket, with a tornado, when people die, it's going to affect you the rest of your life. And some lady pushed her on the rear end and said, oh, for crying out loud, just get out. And it took us a while in our hotel room to process that for her to respond in a godly fashion when she's gonna have dinner with that person later that night. <laughs> and the past affected that. She still had to be godly, but somebody could push me out and I wouldn't be as offended because my past doesn't have that in its story. So when a storm comes, I love to go outside. My wife's like, get in the house. <laughs> and I can argue with her, it's just a tornado watch, nothing bad ever happens. We need to weep with those who weep. 
So lament helps us to empathize. Third, lament helps us to memorialize. Lament also helps you, when you're weeping with those who weep, to be more sensitive. It tunes your heart to the pain of other people. Think of lament like the Vietnam Memorial. You weren't maybe even there or born, but when you go in the memorial, you feel the weight of all those names. Think of it like Arlington National Cemetery. You feel the weight of all of the white crosses. Think of it of the the lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Memorials help us to remember. But memorials are dangerous if you just use them as history and you don't use them to let them affect you. If you use them for the right purpose, they have a great teaching moment. If you use them for anything less than that, they can actually become destructive. Let me show you this in the Bible. Matthew 23, Jesus says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you build the tombs of the prophets, You decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. What is Jesus saying? The problem in Jesus' day is no different than our own. Here's what it is. It is easy to build memorials to prophets in the past and act as if you would not have participated in the activities that led to them needing to be memorialized. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. His rebuke to the religious establishment was because they acted as though they would have listened then, hear me, but they wouldn't listen now. And Jesus says to them, you can build a monument, but if you don't listen now, you just confirm you're the sons just like your fathers. Russell Moore president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention said this, Jesus says the problem is that you come and you decorate the tombs of the prophets. He says you come and recognize Jeremiah, you recognize Isaiah, you recognize Samuel, you recognize Ezekiel, you recognize Elijah, and yet the reason that you are so comfortably able to honor them is because they cannot speak to you any longer. You honor them because they do not disrupt the power that you have or the social order that you have. Martin Luther King is relatively non-controversial in American life because Martin Luther King has not been speaking for 50 years. He writes, it's easy to look backwards and say, if I had been there, I would have listened to Dr. King, even though I do not listen to what is happening around me, in my own community, in my own neighborhood, and in my own church. Do you feel what he's saying? Friends, it's possible to visit the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C. and feel like you've done your duty because you've honored history, but if you don't lament, you've actually made it worse. One of the reasons we took the civil rights trip was to help us to feel the history, to personalize it. We visited 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham where a bomb blew a gaping hole in the church in 1963, taking the lives of four African-American girls. Their names were Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, Denise McNair, 14, 14, 14, 11 years old. It was only 56 years ago. And while we we were there, we received word that one of the girls was a relative of a church member in our church. So this is not history, but it's personal. 
So our trip allowed us to lament at a different level, and this is what weeping with those who weep can do. Laments can be memorials. They can actually serve to tune your heart to the pain of the past, but also to the pain in the present. That's what this sermon series can do, such that instead of watching the news and being filled with prejudice and condescension, to be real blunt, instead of you going, that's black-on-black crime, that's the problem, asking yourself, why is that a problem? Is there no historical reference for that? It's a problem, but why is that a problem? And then take our, 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 our lens and to widen it. We can listen to the voices of our minority brothers and sisters in the past and in the present such that we can weep with those who weep. And when? We think that these divisions are too deep or the path is too complicated or the conversation too loaded. It is really good to know that Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords, entered the mess of all of this. He wept in our world, right? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He stood at the tomb of Lazarus and shed tears right before he said, Lazarus, come out. We know that weeping may come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. This is the same Jesus who said, come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your, my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. And church, since we are a people with that Savior, we are one people under the banner of that king, our first steps must be marked with love. with listening and with lamenting. I promise you we won't stop there. But if you don't go here, you don't go anywhere. If we walk together, we have to weep together. Jesus. I'm so thankful that one day all the tears, the mess of this loaded conversation will be over and one day you will come and make it all right. And I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who apply your word and who choose to go there in our weeping and in our lamenting. How long, oh Lord? How long? How long? church while you're just in a time of quiet reflection could you just talk to the Lord about what's going on in your heart right now I don't have any the, the, the breadth of the level of application of what we've just talked about is so wide would you just maybe your prayer could be something like this Lord how long will how long Oh, Jesus, would you make us a people 
who outdo one another in showing honor. Make us a people ready to serve you, to follow you, to love you. Make us one people, we pray. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been insensitive, where we have been unkind. Forgive us, Lord, where we've not listened to our minority brothers and sisters. Forgive us for not listening to those of majority who are trying to find their way through this. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. And we want our church, our lives, to reflect all of what is good about you. So come now, Lord. Come now, we pray. In Jesus' name.